Welcome to Seize Your Midlife, the podcast exclusively for midlife women. I'm your host, Bree Schumacher. We are going to dive into all the things from health and hormones to beauty and wellness. We'll be asking the question, what's my midlife purpose? And what am I going to do with the rest of my life? We'll also be interviewing women who've taken leaps or made U-turns in midlife. This conversation is going to be engaging, sometimes educational, a little bit funny, and always real. It is my sincere hope that you find your midlife purpose and lead your most fulfilling life. So join us on this journey to seize your midlife. Let's go. Hello, hello, and welcome back to another episode of Seize Your Midlife. I am so glad that you are here today. And I'm especially excited because I have a guest on the show. Morgan Adams is a former insomniac who spent almost a decade using prescription sleeping pills, and now she's a holistic sleep coach for women who struggle with getting a good night's sleep. Midlife women, listen up. I know this is a hot topic. Morgan's goal is to help women feel better and live better, and the key to both, we all know, begins with good sleep. Morgan is also a two-time breast cancer survivor, and she advocates for a lifestyle of disease prevention. But there is so much more to Morgan's bio and to her story, but of course, I want it to come from her. So welcome to the show, Morgan. Thank you, Bree. I am so excited to be here. I appreciate your invitation. I'm excited for this conversation. Fantastic. Okay. So the first question I ask on every episode is how old are you? Well, I'll be 53 tomorrow. Oh my gosh. (laughs) So yes. (laughs) Happy early birthday. Thank you. Thank you. Um, And where are you right now? I, I live in Richmond, Virginia. Awesome. I was actually there not that long ago for soccer tournaments. Oh, nice. Yes, very pretty place. So good. Okay, well, let's just dive right in. So you have had an interesting journey from getting your master's degree in social work to working in pharmaceutical sales to selling beauty products. You've done a lot of different things. And it sounds like a breast cancer diagnosis in 2018 is what really changed your mindset in regard to health and wellness. Is that right? Absolutely. Yeah. So when I had that diagnosis, it really, I mean, when you have any type of health scare, it really can propel you into thinking more deeply about the the whole um, goal of your life and what you want to accomplish and what's important to you, your priorities. And so once that diagnosis happened, I just got very clear on how I wanted my health to be in the, in the second half of my life. And I made lots and lots of sweeping health changes. And that is really kind of what made me want to move in the direction of helping women with their health. It, it, got, it got me to a very clear place, I would say for sure. 
I bet. And I think that's not uncommon when people get a scary health diagnosis like breast cancer. It's kind of a wake-up call. And unfortunately, I feel like a lot of times we stay in a place until we get some sort of wake-up call, like a health scare, like a job loss, you know, things like that. And I I think it's really important and I love what you're doing because I feel like you're kind of getting in front of the scares. Like this is about health and wellness right now and not waiting. But that sounds like it was a really big wake-up call for you personally and I can only imagine what that was like. Yes, it was huge. Huge wake hugest wake up call I've ever had. Oh, <laughs> I believe I believe it and one no one should get. But how did that lead you to wanting to become a sleep coach? Cuz that's, you know, I understand the health and wellness, but sleep coach, you don't hear of that very often. So let's talk about that. Yeah, well, it's kind of a roundabout thing. So I'll backtrack a little bit to um, my mid-30s. I had a very significant bout of insomnia. I would lie in bed for up to two hours every night waiting to get to sleep. It was really um, quite a drain on my life and my attitude. And I did, as you said in the beginning, um, I dealt with it by taking sleeping pills. And I reached the point where eight years into it, I decided I had to get rid of the sleeping pills. That's a whole other topic we can touch on later if you want. But I ended up um, healing from the insomnia on my own. And when I got breast cancer, so I'm kind of fast forwarding many years, but when I got breast cancer, I initially thought, hey, I kind of want to like help women with being like a support system for breast cancer, like a breast cancer coach. But then I just, I kind of lost interest. I thought that could be a really heavy topic. So I kind of pushed that aside, but there was this lingering kind of yearning in me that wanted to help women with their health. And fast forward to the pandemic, um, early 2020, I started having sleeping problems again. And I got very concerned because I did not want to go back to the original insomnia. So I started to do a lot of research on sleep. And what I discovered in in my research really got me back on track. And as I began to get my sleep back to normal, I started sharing on social media just organically some of the things I was doing. And I came to find out that a lot of other women in my circle were struggling with sleep too because of the pandemic, really, and all the confusion. And so... It was really at that point that I thought, okay, I found, I found a topic that I'm really passionate about. There are not a lot of other people doing like professional sleep stuff other than sleep doctors. I mean, there's multitudes of health coaches, you know, looking at different topics like hormone health and weight loss. And none of that really grabbed me, but I was like, this sleep thing is, is my thing. I'm grabbing onto this and I'm going to actually use sleep as a tool to help women with their overall health. So that's really how I got into it. That was the the long story of it. Yeah. And I mean, the truth is I think we can all relate to that sitting in bed and you are tired, like your body is fatigued, you're so tired and you cannot sleep and how it kind of spirals because then you start counting down. 
now I've got four more hours of sleep. Now I got three more hours of sleep. And it, it think it kind of kicks things up and makes it worse. And there is kind of a like panic that goes into it because, I mean, I always say when I don't get enough sleep, it feels worse than being hungover even. Like it is the worst feeling. So I can understand when you were struggling with this why you became so passionate about it. And I think that, you know, obviously hormones do impact women's sleep. And so I think that's why midlife women are so desperate to learn about this topic. And it sounds like, you know, you and all the other women that have said they have sleep issues are not alone because I read something that like 46% of women say they struggle to sleep every single night. Is that accurate? Yes. And there's actually even some more updated data that um, came out like 2022. They did a survey, the American Academy of Sleep Medicine, and they said that women were one and a half times more likely than men to report rarely or never being rested, feeling well rested when they wake up, which is astounding. And another statistic that we've known for quite a while is that women have almost a two times risk of developing insomnia from adolescence to menopause. So we are definitely in a, in a spot as women where we are more prone to sleep disruption and it just gets worse, unfortunately, as we enter midlife. Yeah. Wow. Those statistics are pretty mind-blowing and not surprising because I think anyone who, who sleeps next to a man knows they they fall asleep right away and sleep through the night. So <laughs> yes. okay, let's just like dive into how sleep can affect your overall wellness because, like I said, I know we all feel bad, but let's start with some of the short-term impacts of not getting good sleep. Yeah. Well, there are quite a few short-term ones that I'm sure a lot of your listeners can relate to. So the first one I'll call out is being irritable or moody and easily agitated after a bad night of sleep or a stretch of several nights of bad sleep. We can, I think, all identify with that. We also can see some cognitive function issues, for example, like having problems concentrating, making decisions. We also find that our reaction time and our judgment becomes impaired when we have not had enough sleep. And so that can put us at risk of, unfortunately, more accidents, uh, car accidents at home or wherever. And then lastly, what we also have found is that when we're not getting enough sleep, our immune system becomes weaker. And I think a lot of us could probably identify with a, a period of sleep deprivation for a few nights and then boom, we get a cold or a virus or whatever. So yeah, there's quite a few really pesky um, short-term um, issues involved with sleep deprivation um, short-term. Yeah. And I think <laughs> there's not anyone listening that hasn't felt some of those impacts of not getting yes. a good night's sleep. And I am sure that you and everyone listening can relate to the fact that we cannot bounce back from no sleep the way we could in our 20s, right? Like in our 20s, we could stay out till two in the morning, <laughs> get up for work the next day, and we are still going. But now it's like, oh, I got to bed at 11 and now I need a nap in the middle of the day, right? <laughs> oh, yes. They relate to that. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, Let's talk to about long-term impacts because those are even more scary than the short-term ones. Yeah. So what we see in the research is that 
long-term sleep deprivation has been linked to some chronic health conditions. Um, specifically, we note obesity, type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and depression. Um, but what I want to say about that, though, is we need to kind of look at this with a little nuance, because when they're looking at these studies, we have to just really reinforce the fact that that, that causation and correlation are not the same thing. So all of these chronic diseases I just listed are correlated with sleep deprivation. So it's not like sleep depri deprivation 100% without a doubt causes these issues. There's just a correlation. So we really want to make that distinction because what I'm finding more and more so lately is that the media headlines are very, very scary because they're, they're kind of fear-inducing and when you look at the headlines, you kind of assume if you're just, you know, looking at the headlines and not digging into the study that um, sleep deprivation causes X, Y, and Z. And when you have insomnia and you're looking at those headlines, it creates more anxiety, which exacerbates your insomnia. So I just really want to make it clear that you have to really be careful about like believing the headlines and consider the fact that some of the studies may not have been properly designed. So yeah, that's just a caveat. But we, I mean, we really do want to make sure that people understand there's a link, there's a risk, but there's not necessarily um, part particularly like sleep deprivation causes XYZ disease. Yeah. And I think that's really noble of you to be like, listen, like sleep is really important and it does impact a lot of things in your life, but let's not get panicky because we all know that panic is one of the worst things for sleep, right? Right, exactly. And in and, and my coaching and my speaking, what I really like to focus on is all of the great benefits that sleep brings you as far as like your daily life versus all the scary things that can happen. Because most people, honestly, fear, fear types of tactics and facts don't necessarily induce change. But people want to feel better on a day-to-day -day basis, so they're more willing to make changes for that purpose. Yeah. And speaking of your coaching, mm -hmm. so I want to just circle back a little bit to, you know, you start looking into how to sleep better and what to do because you started to have this second round of insomnia and I'm sure brought up really bad PTSD for you from the first time that you went through that. Um, and you talked about how you started putting out, like on your social media, for example, about sleep. And you were getting feedback from people that they were really interested, that other people were going through the same thing. But at what point were you like, you know what, I want to get some sort of formal training on this and make it a business? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, I think what it was is that I just like I had that yearning to do something in health and it just looked like sleep was that thing that I just was so passionate about. So what I ended up doing was, I mean, I, I made the decision, like it was like seriously, like one of those boom moments. And, and my, my husband still remembers where we were walking in our neighborhood when I announced that to him. <laughs> we still talk about it. And so I'd made the decision, but then I was like, now what do I do? Like, how do I get trained? Um, you know, the unfortunate thing is there, there's not a lot of uh, training out there for sleep coaching specifically. So I did my research and without going into like all of the, the details, I found 
um, a general health coaching program that I enrolled in. And then to supplement the sleep science stuff, I enrolled in a couple of different sleep specific programs. But I really, I really do feel like there needs to be more uh, sleep coaching programs out there because it's, it's a, it's an issue that more people need help with. We have a, a shortage of sleep doctors in the States and there's often a very, very long wait list for insomnia uh, patients. And so the sleep coaches can help sort of coach these, these people who are really having difficulty um, while they're waiting to see a sleep doctor. Wow, so we need yeah. more educate. We need more educational opportunities for sleep coaching, and I do. I do feel like they're starting to pop up. But you know, long story short, is I had to kind of piecemeal together my own education with with sleep coaching. Okay, interesting. And I also just want to point out when you said "boom moments," I know people <laughs> call those moments like "aha moments," whatever. Something different. I've never heard "boom moment" before, but I love it because. I think so often, especially as women in midlife, we're kind of waiting for that moment, right? The mm -hmm. moment when we're like, this, this is the thing that I'm meant to do. This is the thing that I can offer the world. Um, and so how awesome that you had that moment. Like that's fantastic that you were like, this is what I'm going to step into. Um, and you so solidly knew it was sleep and you were willing to kind of pave your own way because there wasn't some clear – cut program just for you, which is right. really cool. Right. Okay. Well, let's talk more again for those people that are listening that are like, I mean, I struggle with sleep, but who should hire a sleep coach? Yeah. There are a few different kind of categories that I'm seeing as far as people who are hiring me. I would say the first group, the bulk of the clients that I have, they do identify as having insomnia and they are often desperate when they come to me because they've gone to maybe sleep doctors or therapists and haven't had resolution or they've been suffering with it for years and just never thought there was help. So those are, that's the bulk of who I see. And then there's a couple other subgroups of people. I would call the second group, the optimizers, put them in the optimizers category because they're often like pretty decent sleepers but they know that there that there's room for improvement and they come to me because they really want to up-level their sleep skills. And then I would say the last group of people who come to me are the people who are like the really high achieving um, professionals who are burning the candle at both ends. They know that they are willingly sleep depriving themselves but they just need like that accountability and the structure from a coach to help them make those changes. So those are really the main groups of people that I'm seeing with my coaching. Interesting. Yeah. Like I never thought about there are so many different ways to look at sleep and who struggles with sleep. The other category that I want to ask you about is midlife women in particular what kind of issues are you seeing with women in midlife and sleep? Yeah, that actually happens to be the bulk of my client base. And there are many, many issues, but the ones that I'm seeing the most are like middle of the night awakenings. And like, I would say at least half of my clients are dealing with that. And when you look at middle of the night awakenings, there are a few different 
things that are usually causing them. And I'll just kind of go over them briefly because it gives you, it gives you a place to start to kind of investigate for yourself. So the first thing would be low blood sugar um, causing an overnight awakening because the low blood sugar dip creates a, a cortisol and adrenaline spike. And that is what actually wakes you up. Um, second thing I see is women being hot at night and they wake up in the middle of the night. And sometimes it's like very obvious that they're hot because they're having a hot flash and they're sweating. But sometimes they're just, they're just a little overheated and they're not really completely realizing they're overheated. And then the third biggie that I really want to drive home is sleep apnea. What we're seeing in midlife women is a real sharp increase in sleep apnea. So if you think about sleep apnea, you often conjure up an image of like an overweight middle-aged guy with a belly, like Homer Simpson snoring on the couch, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and when you reach midlife for women, midlife women's incidence of sleep apnea basically matches that of men. So we do see that increase. And we also know that 90% of women with sleep, yeah, sleep apnea go undiagnosed, which is absolutely absurd. We're finding that the primary care medical community, your general practitioners, are not really screening properly for women who have sleep apnea. So I just really want to drive that home because a lot of women go to their doctor because they're having trouble sleeping. And the doctor will sometimes overlook the sleeping problem and maybe say, hey, you're depressed. You need an antidepressant. And they, the woman has sleep apnea. How is the antidepressant going to solve the sleep apnea? Um, so if you're a woman and you're waking up with a dry mouth and headache, um, you're sleepy for um, a significant uh, part of the day, even though you've like had your seven or eight hours, those are really big signs that you probably should get a sleep study or, or contact a doctor to find out more about um, how to look for sleep apnea. Wow. That is really fascinating because I agree. I wouldn't think of that. And, you know, just to go on to what you said about doctors, especially with women saying, oh, you must be depressed. I can't tell you how many women I've interviewed that had serious medical issues. And that was the first place that their doctor Mm -hmm. went. And it's so Mm -hmm. frustrating as women um, that that is the first place. So, um, you know, just a reminder to everybody to always be an advocate because you know when something's not going on with your body. But for everybody listening, will you just give like a quick Wikipedia version of what sleep apnea is? Yeah. So it's when the, um, the throat, sort of the muscles in the throat kind of collapse and you basically stop breathing. Um, kind of scary to think about because you need oxygen to like maintain your, your body. Um, so you, what, what, and I'm not an expert in sleep apnea, but they sort of divide um, severity of sleep apnea into like um, mild, moderate, and severe. And so I think that like mild is like five to 10 breathing interruptions per hour. And then it can go up to like 30 for um, severe So there are different treatment options according to how um, severe the apnea is. You may have heard, you know, CPAP, which is continuous positive airway pressure machine, is often the most common one. 
There's also um, oral appliances for mild sleep apnea. There's implants too, and there's positional therapy, which is basically how you are lying um, at night when you're sleeping. So if you're, if you, you might want to try sleeping on your side versus your back. Um, so yeah, there are a lot of different treatment options out there for sleep apnea. And I think um, a good first step if you suspect that you have sleep apnea is to talk to your doctor and really push for a sleep study because sometimes you may find that there's pushback from the doctor. And like you said, Brie, like you have to advocate for your own health and push sometimes to get that sleep study. Yeah. Wow. Well, for the women that are listening that, you know, they have the waking up in the middle of the night or, you know, trouble falling asleep or they're insomnia or whatever, something that's outside of the sleep apnea, which I know does require more of a medical intervention. But for, um, the, you know, the rest of the women that are listening that are struggling with sleep, because it is a common thing, like you said, the majority of your clients fall into middle middle age, midlife for a reason. Um, and I think a lot of people turn to sleep aids, right? Like yes. taking sleeping pills or melatonin even, um, which I know it's interesting. I was taking melatonin and I was feeling tired just in the middle of the day all the time. And my neighbor next door who's a nurse practitioner was like, I think it's the melatonin. And I was like, no, that doesn't even make sense. Like mm-hmm. it's a vitamin. So talk a little bit about why those sleep aids aren't usually the best solution. Yeah. Well, I'll start with the, 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 the prescription sleeping pills um, that are in the category of something called Z drugs. And that would be like the Ambien, Lunesta, Sonata. And I um, mentioned earlier, I had taken Ambien for eight years. And the problem with the Z drugs is that they're not really actually giving you, quote, real sleep. It's more of a sedation than real sleep. What it does is it messes with your sleep architecture. So you're not going through all of those sleep stages properly. And when you look at the studies about sleeping pills in this class, you really, really get a lot of clarity on like how useful they are. Um, In other words, they may not be that useful. So they did a study in 2021 where they looked at over 600 women And what they found was that there was no statistically significant difference in sleep improvement after using sleeping pills for one to two years compared to women who did not use the sleeping pills. So they're really not as effective as we may believe they they are. And so there's a book called Why We Sleep by Dr. Matthew Walker, and he goes very, very in-depth into um, the sleeping pill issue and some of the dangers and side effects. And I'll leave that to your listeners to look that book up. But there is a quote that I want to share that he talks about with Ambien. He says, quote, Ambien induced sleep caused a 50% weakening or unwiring of the brain cell connections originally formed in learning. In doing so, Ambien laced sleep became a memory eraser. So that's pretty scary if you think about it, what the sleeping pills are doing to our memory. Wow. That is crazy. And I think too, like I've never been one to take sleeping pills, but even like with the melatonin thing where I was feeling just groggy during the day, I think you take the sleeping pills. It's like one more notch. And the whole point of trying desperately to sleep is so that you feel good during the day when you're awake. Um, So some of those aids, I think, impact sleep. So one of the things that I 
and I, I hate to admit this, but sometimes like if I'm at a hotel and it's noisy or whatever, I will take a kid's chewable Benadryl. But there have been studies coming out that I've seen that that's not even good in regards to memory, right? Yeah. They've done some investigations about long-term use of these these drugs, and they contain diphenhydramine is the ingredient. It's an antihistamine. And again, I want to just say correlation, not causation, right? But they're correlating long-term use of these antihistamines to memory loss and dementia. So we want to be really careful about using them long-term. Now, your use of it, Brie, on occasion is probably not a big deal, but we're talking about people who who are just routinely, habitually, year after year taking them. Okay. And that's good. That's good that you're deciphering that because I think a lot of people who are taking sleep aids are taking them every single night and it gets to be kind of part of their routine. Yes, that's exactly right. Every single night. That's And that's really what the sleeping pills were actually, when you look at the package insert on the bottle, it does say they're meant for short-term use, like two weeks or so. Mm, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Yet the doctors, when you um, see them prescribe, they will often do it like refill as needed, you know, like almost like a birth control pill, just month after month after month. And they're not meant to be taken long-term. Wow. So doctors really should be prescribing them with an exit strategy for the patient instead of just saying, take these indefinitely, because that's not how they were meant to be taken. There is, I mean, there is a place for the sleeping pills in a crisis situation, like a divorce, a divorce, a death, um, job loss. You know, you really need to get through a short-term period, but they're just not meant to take indefinitely. We're not, we're meant, not meant to take them for that long. Wow. Interesting. And I would agree. Yeah. People get the 30-day prescription or whatever, but the other thing I want to ask you about, because there has been a lot of fanfare these days on morning routine and the 5 a.m. club and all of these things kind of saying get up earlier and earlier and earlier. I see people like they're going to the gym at four in the morning and whatever. But you told me when we chatted before that some people literally are not naturally wired to be morning people. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. So this is all about the chronotype. And a chronotype is basically whether you're a morning person or an evening person. And there's there's actually an online test you can take. There are a couple. I'll, I'll share them with you. Um, it's called the Morningness Eveningness Questionnaire. It's an actual clinical validated uh, measure that will show you to which degree you're a morning lark or an evening person. Then there's another one you can take, and I believe it's called the Power of When. Um, if you Google like sleep doctor, the sleep doctor, he is really kind of the, the pioneer of the chronotype designation into the animals, which we can talk about. But I think going back to what you said is that, the, and I see this all the time, there's so much hype about the 5am club. And like, it's almost like a morality issue, like to be moral and like an ethical and good citizen, you have to wake up early and start being productive at the crack of dawn. That's just not true. Because if you're not a morning person and you're trying to force yourself to be, you're really going to suffer a lot. So what I recommend for my clients, and we do some digging into this and we find out your chronotype, we try to work with your chronotype instead of against it. So, you know, if you are not really into the 5 a.m. club because you don't feel well, then 
don't do it. <laughs> There's no need to. Permission to sleep in, right? Yes. <laughs> yes. We really just, I mean, if you, if you feel better going to bed at midnight and sleeping till seven or eight, more power to you. The problem is, is that our society is geared toward the early bird. Just think about like in corporate America, you've been in corporate America, probably um, at some point, like all the meetings start like eight o'clock, nine o'clock. Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes that is just not going to work out very well for, for the night owl chronotype. So it, it is a, quite an unfortunate situation for those folks in a, in a setting where early morning productivity is expected. Well, and I think that's something really important to pay attention to, that you have a chronotype. Like your body is wired a certain way. I am by nature a morning person. And so I kind of have a hard time when I'm like, why are they still sleeping? You know, but I think when we understand that it is a wiring biologically and there is something called a chronotype, we can have like a little bit more grace with people who sleep later, right? Like it's not – because, you know, you hear like all the great leaders, they're up at five in the morning, you know, they're – um, and I think it's important to, to honor your own sleep. So will you send me the link for that quiz so we can put it in the show notes? Absolutely. I'll send you links to both the quizzes. Okay. Because I think people will like that. I think that's mm-hmm. really fascinating. Although I bet that most people have an inkling to which one they are, right? <laughs> yeah. I think most people do have a have a, an inkling at this point in their and their life as to, as to what they are. And our chronotypes actually kind of shift a little bit during our lifespan. So when we're teenagers, we tend to be more like night owls. And then we kind of meet in the middle, sort of like in our 20s to 40s. And then, you know, maybe around mid 40s to 50, we start kind of shifting a little bit more into the early bird. Yeah. <laughs> Hence the early bird special. When you go to restaurants and you see people there eating at 4.30 or 5, they're usually older, right? So right. evidence oh. there that that um, older people do tend to veer toward that um, early bird chronotype. Oh my gosh. That's so fascinating. I never thought about the chronotype shifting because yes, like we joke, my um, husband's father lives in a retirement community and it's the only place in America where like you can't get the 5 p.m. reservation, right? (laughs) (laughs) Everyone else like wants the 7 p.m., but like in the senior community, like nope. We got to get yeah. there at 5 p.m., maybe 4.45 even, you know? Yes. And actually, I'm I'm, I'm actually in that category right now. I'm I always trying to, to to get those 5 o'clock reservations. Hey, so, I hear yes. you. In, in fact, I like joke. I'm like, we need like a midlife dance club because yes. I miss dancing in my life, but I really want to be in my pajamas by 10. So could we like open it up at like 6? I still want dancing in my life, but I can't. I cannot go out at 9 p.m. I want to be like coming home and putting on my PJs at that time. So can we start the dance club yes. at 6? <laughs> I'm with you. I'm sister. I'll be there with you, shaking my booty with you. Okay. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Somebody needs to – anybody listening, like come up with this, please. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Okay. So – If someone is listening and they're like, gosh, this has just been a continuous issue with me, what is the process to start working with you? Yeah. So I have a a coaching program that is one-to-one. So we work, you know, together, just you and me, and we really um, get to the root of the sleep problem. 
And so I'm looking at a lot of, I'm doing a lot of questioning in the beginning, a lot of asking questions, learning about your health, your sleep patterns. And we come up with a plan on how to work towards fixing your sleep. Again, we go into the chronotypes. Um, I look at people's sleep beliefs and attitudes because oftentimes the relationship you have with your sleep is so negative. We need to shift that into the more of the at least, at least neutral territory. And sometimes we do some cognitive behavioral therapy techniques, which is quite effective. So the way I look at sleep coaching is that there's not a one size fits all. And so I really look at the unique characteristics of my client and her life situation to come up with that plan. So that's a little bit about how I work is just in an individual um, capacity. Okay, great. And will you just tell people before I, I ask you one more question, but will you tell people where they can find you? Sure. Yeah. My website is Morgan Adams Wellness. There you can find a free mini course that I just put out um, on morning and evening routines for better sleep. Uh, you can also have um, the opportunity to have a free sleep clarity call with me to discuss your, your personal sleep issue. And I tend to be quite active on Instagram. So my handle there is morganadams.wellness. So I'm, I'm very active with some content there. So I'm always up for connecting and talking about sleep. So don't hesitate to reach out. Okay, great. And I will definitely put this in the show notes as well so that everybody has it. If you, you know, forget that there's a dot with the well, you know, whatever, I will put it in the show notes. But before we go, Morgan, will you tell us, has there been a client or an experience that someone's had working with you that you feel like you want to share the difference or the results about their story? Yeah. So I think what I'm finding a lot with my clients is that they often have blind spots with their sleep. So they get very tunnel visioned often into like, this is the reason why I'm not sleeping. And so there's a client that I worked with recently. She's in her early sixties. She's, she'd had insomnia for about 20 years, which is a long time to be dealing with sleep problems. And she's a nutritionist. And so she kept thinking that it was all about how her eating was affecting her sleep. And what we began to uncover through journaling, like keeping a sleep tracker and keeping a food tracker, is that her eating patterns didn't equate to how well she slept or not slept. What was really the root of the issue was underlying anxiety and hyperarousal from insomnia. So we really, really dug into some relaxation techniques, some mindfulness work, changing her bedtimes and wake times. And with all of those different interventions, she was able to really, really make some drastic improvements in like in her sleep, in her uh, fewer nighttime awakenings. It took her less time to fall asleep. So she's a really big success story. And it, it really speaks to the fact that we do have a lot of blind spots. And sometimes you need that outside person looking in to like, help you notice that what you thought was the problem with your sleep really isn't the actual problem. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. And I think, you know, for somebody like her, you know, when you are having sleep problems, it's such a desperate situation. And to be able to be like, God, 
this really helped. I mean, it must just feel like you were a godsend to her. So what a cool thing that you're doing to help women sleep better. Thank you. And thanks so much for coming on, Morgan. It was so great to hear everything that you shared today about sleep. We're all so desperate for a good night's sleep, right? Yes. Well, it's it a pleasure talking to you. Uh, and thanks to all of you for listening. I am so grateful and humbled that you tuned in. Hey, if you have not given the podcast a review, will you just take a minute and do that? It will help so much. It helps women to find the podcast. And the truth is, the more women that find this podcast, the greater the conversation will be. Thanks so much. And sleep tight tonight, my friends. Have a good one. 